This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. So today, in episode 7, we are actually going to be tackling Mary Mary, quite contrary, Mary, Queen of Scots. So, Renee, how do we get here? How do we get to Mary, Queen of Scots? I picked her. That's really it. I've always thought that Mary was one of the most interesting monarchs that I've ever learned about. She is, well, you'll learn. She's just so incredibly intelligent, and she just has a habit of making all the stupid decisions. That's really all I got. Yeah, but then, I mean, Renee is also... We'll get around to this because we're going to cover quite a bit of Scottish history because Renee is obsessed with all things Scotland. She's obsessed. Okay, she studied there for a semester at Edinburgh University. And so, you know, that's, that's really how we got here. I chose the Titanic. I will fully admit that because I was completely obsessed with the Titanic. There's still so many books we didn't read that I wanted to read. Renee wouldn't let me read them all. So, we do not have enough time for her to read them all. True, but regardless of that, I they're still going to be read. Them read them for fun later. I will totally read them for fun. So that's how we chose the Titanic. And Mary Queen of Scots was Renee's brainchild. Yeah, I mean, because when I was studying in Edinburgh, there was actually a Mary Queen of Scots exhibit at the National Museum of Scotland. And unfortunately, Adrian wasn't visiting me at the time. I think the exhibit actually ended, what, like a week before you got there? I think so. I think they like closed up shop. You got me the um uh what do they call that? The uh the brochure, the, 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 the that's not a brochure, but um, the 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 booklet that they make for the exhibits that you can get that basically summarizes it for you. Yeah, cuz we collect those. We're we're those people. And it was just such a shame cuz it was an incredible exhibit and I've been checking back to see if they're bringing it back and no such luck. Bringing it back where? To Scotland? You're going to make a special visit just to see the Mary Queen of Scots exhibit? No, I'm going to go to Scotland to see Scotland, and then while I'm there, I'm going to go to the exhibit again. Uh, and of course, I'll be coming with you, obviously. Obviously. Naturally. Um, but yeah, so the way we pick our topics, I don't think we ever really got into this, so we're just going to do a quick thing. Uh, the way we pick our topics is based on our interests and obsessions, based on what we think our listeners would enjoy. And also things that they either, A, haven't covered in schools because uh, there's a lot to get through in schools and because they just don't cover things because I guess they're too controversial um, and or things that, you know, they really can't go into depth about in school. So, you know, we're going to be doing that for them. OK, so before we get into this episode, we are going to make a disclaimer because there is so much political stuff going on in the background, we are really not going to be talking about that. There's so many people, so many schemes, so many plots. So many names, so many dates. And honestly, like, 
court politics in general is so intricate and interwoven, but what was going on at Scotland is just, like, blows your mind in a way. So we can't get into all of that because... We'll be here for the next three years. Yeah, like, half the nobles are in a constant state of plotting. Just to let you know, we are literally covering Mary's life and the most relevant details in to her and the politics that are going on at the time and none of the background stuff. So before we get into the episode, we did want to give a shout out to the Best Forevers podcast and the Brew Crime podcast. Um, Those are the two promos that would be featured in our episode and Best Forevers is so good. You should absolutely listen to it. Um, It is a podcast that's really all about friends and friendships um, and you know that includes in life, in books, and the TV shows and movies we all love. And then there is the Brew Crime Podcast. So it is a true crime podcast and it is exactly what it sounds. There's beer, there's crime, and they go together absolutely perfectly. And those promos will be at the end of our episode. And uh, make sure that you are following us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians because we will update you on the podcast, um, on topics, and sometimes we even poll. We send out a poll about which topics should be in our podcast. With that done, let's move on back to 16th century Scotland. We pick up our story on a cold winter's day in 1542. Mary's father was James V of Scotland, who was the son of James IV and Margaret Tudor. And if her last name sounds familiar, it should. She was the sister of King Henry VIII of England. Mary's mother was Marie de Guise. And also going forward, we will be calling Mary's mother Marie Uh, A, because she was French, and B, to differentiate from Mary herself. That way we're not confused because a lot of people had the same name in this time period. Lots of Marys and Jameses running around. All right, so uh, Marie was actually the daughter of Claude, the Duke of Guise, and Antoinette of Bourbon, and they were one of the most powerful families in France. Okay, so James was actually her second husband. She was married before she came to Scotland and became the Queen of Scots. In her first marriage, she was the Duchesse de Longueville, and she and the Duke had a son by the name of Francis. They also had a second boy by the name of Louis, but unfortunately he died when he was very, very little. Francis became the Duke when his father died, and he was three years old when this happened. So three years old, and he's the Duke de Longueville. All right. Now, Marie was a fancy Nancy when she arrived in Scotland, and she made sure that, you know, she spruced up the palaces so that they were lovely places to live in, just like she was used to in France. And before Mary, Marie and James actually had two boys, but they both died in 1541. Baby James was almost one, and baby Robert was only eight days old. Very, very sad for King James and Queen Marie. Um, In the meantime, though, King James was living up, all right? He seemed to be having illegitimate kids left and right during his life as king with many different mistresses. And supposedly there were somewhere between seven to nine kids in all, but we don't know for sure. Okay, so Mary was born at Linlithgow Palace on January 8th, 1542 as the only surviving heir. 
A couple weeks before, on November 24th, James V actually lost the Battle of Solway Moss against his uncle, Henry VIII. And he was devastated by this loss. And can we also take a moment to say how crazy it is that Henry VIII was going to battle against his own nephew? Like, you think of all these kings, right? He's the king of Scotland, and he's the king of England, and someone else is the king of France. But a lot of these people were related to one another, but they didn't treat each other like that. They treated each other as kings. Okay, fine, that makes sense. You're an anointed king, so, you know, obviously you want the respect. But at the same time, like, I can't even imagine fighting a battle against, you know, someone in my family. But... When you don't know that person, I guess it's kind of like a, what, philosophical connection? You know you're related, but that doesn't mean much in the grand scheme of things. Well, I mean, it's not like they got together for holidays and are like, well, nephew, how are you doing today? How's Scotland? It was more like, oh, he's my rival to the north. Yeah. Maybe if they had family dinners, you know? Scotland's not that far. They might have been able to get along. There would have been peace everywhere. <laughs> Funny. Utopia. That's not mm, a thing. Yeah. No, they didn't like that idea, I think. If there was land to be taken, they would try to take it. Yeah. So speaking of the Battle of Solway Moss, was this a family tradition? Because James V's dad, James IV, was actually killed at the Battle of Flodden Field. Which was against three guesses who? England. You got it. Um, and fun fact, James was a popular name for royal heirs, if you couldn't tell. James III, number four's dad, had two sons named James. The other was a duke. And yeah, the spare lived into his 20s, so he had two grown sons named James. James III just had to make sure there was a King James to succeed him, just in case the heir died. And if the heir and the spare died then it would have been King John of Scotland. That would have been interesting. Never been one of those. Nope. No, actually, there has never been one of those. But back to Solway Moss. So the king got away, but his Scotsmen weren't so lucky. Hundreds of men, including lords, lairds, there's a difference, and chieftains were rounded up and taken to Scotland. I mean, London, because they were already in Scotland. London. All right, so James V ended up in bed at Falkland Palace, where, you know, news was brought to him that his child was born. It was kind of like, yay! Wait, a girl? Damn it! And that was pretty much the last nail in the coffin. Supposedly, he said, you know, it came from a woman and it will end with a woman. Or it came with a lass and it will pass with a lass. And the reason for this is that the Stuart line came from Marjorie Bruce, um, who was the daughter of Robert the Bruce. And if you guys don't know who he is, if you've seen the movie... Outlaw King or Braveheart? Out I was thinking Braveheart. Totally forgot about Outlaw King. <laughs> but if you've seen the movie Braveheart, it's not Mel Gibson's character. It's the other guy. Angus McFadden. Who was totally going to be Robert the Bruce in another movie, but sidetracking. Okay, so Robert the Bruce was a big deal. And his son David died without any heirs to succeed him. So that was the end for James V. At 30 years old, he passed away on December 14th, and no one really knows what he died of. See, the problem is that historians kind of go back and forth about it. Some say it was heartbreak over the fact that he had a girl, like, that was just, like, that was it. Others were, like, his 
Pride was so wounded that he just gave up on life, I guess. But no one really knows because he didn't suffer any great injury or anything at the battle, so. Yeah, he didn't even participate in the battle. So, again, it's up in the air. Nobody knows. All right, so we talk about history repeating. Baby Mary was only six days old. Her dad was 17 months old when he became king. So it's not just a family tradition of dying in battle or dying as a result of battle. It's a family tradition of becoming an anointed monarch, you know, before you're able to walk. Or feed yourself. Right? Anything. But that's fine. Yeah, so kids were actually becoming kings from 1406, which was since James I. Hello, Scotland. Scotland has an issue with, you know, their monarchs becoming crowned at a reasonable age. I mean, it's not just Scotland. Living at that time wasn't uh, the healthiest proposition. You could die of so many different things. Infection, disease, assassination. There's so many different options. (laughs) How can you pick just one? All right. Now, Mary... She was baptized as soon as possible, and for some reason, Henry VIII was getting reports that she was sickly and probably wouldn't live, and we don't really know where those came from, like, perhaps it was wishful thinking, but okay. So, still an infant, and all of a sudden, this battle is now ensuing. Who is going to have control of this baby? And you know what people do? They plot. Why? Because plotters got a plot. It was pretty much a bunch of children fighting over their favorite teddy bear. Now, Marie de Guise grew up in the French court, so she was actually a force to be reckoned with. She was very, very politically savvy. And who became the regent? Not Marie de Guise. The head honcho who stepped in for the baby queen until she came of age was actually the Earl of Iran, who was Mary's heir. So if Mary died... The Earl of Iran would become the King of Scots. They couldn't find someone a little less biased to take care of this. Shame on James V for not leaving a will stating who would be regent. But to be fair, he probably didn't think he'd die at the age of 30. And speaking of Iran, he was Team England all the way. So Marie couldn't trust him with Mary's favorite bauble, let alone with the Queen herself. And a bit about Scotland. It wasn't like England. The first thing the lords wanted to support was themselves, not the crown. There was a lot of infighting, blood feuds, and eye-for-an-eye type thing going around. The Highlands and the Lowlands stayed clear of each other. The Highlanders spoke Gaelic, while the Lowlanders spoke Scots, which is closer to English than Gaelic. Example, Highland cow, that's English. Heelan coo is Scots. And in Gaelic, Renee... It would be, and forgive my pronunciation, I'm really hoping I did this correctly and I remember crap. Bo Geltocht. That would be Highland cow in Gaelic. Sounds nothing like Highland cow in Scots or English. All right, and now let me just specify that Gaelic is not Gaelic. Gaelic is Irish. Gaelic is a Scottish variant. So they spelled the same, pronounced differently, and the words are also pronounced differently. Just throwing that out there, just in case anyone gets confused. Yeah, and if you've ever seen Gaelic or Gaelic, the way it looks on paper is so not the way it's pronounced when you say it. It's the furthest thing that it could be. 
So my task to you is literally go on Google, Yahoo, whatever browser you use and put in, um, you know, English to Scottish Gaelic and just type in the word Highland. And when you see Gaeltocht, it is not going to look at all like what you think. So have fun with that. Yeah. So now that Renee's assigned you homework. But it's fun homework. I mean, I, I fine. I can concede to that. Okay, so the clans, the highlands, the lowlands, the lords. Why couldn't they all just get along? It was the regional differences. And they just didn't feel like it, really, to be quite honest, until they needed to. And, you know, their own lands, titles, and clans were far more important than one mean central monarchy. And which made it so much harder for the ruler of Scotland to rein in all of their different peoples. I mean, you also have to think about the fact that the monarchy had one army, but these lords, if they were powerful enough, had their own. And sometimes they were greater than the monarchies. Yeah, so the, you know, the clan leaders, for instance, could um, call their men to arms and raise an army of their own that's completely independent of the crown. So good for them, not so good for the king or queen. Okay, so with Iran heading things up, Henry VIII allowed 23 of his Scottish prisoners to go back to Scotland. But wait! Before you go, enjoy my palace, my food. Oh, and sign this piece of paper that says you're also Team England now, and you're totally on board with sending Mary to England. He'd keep her safe and take care of her and raise her, and then one day, she'll marry his darling son, the future Edward VI. And at that time, Edward was five years old. And here's where Marie de Guise shows her brilliance. Henry VIII sent an ambassador to Scotland to propose his plan, right? And Marie could have won an Oscar. Why, yes, this is an awesome plan. What could be more natural than my daughter marrying your son? It's like a match made in heaven. In reality, she was trying to get the King of France, Francis I, to send aid to Scotland to protect her daughter and her crown. First, she needed to get Mary away from Iran. How did she want to do this? Get her to Stirling Castle. So she spun the ambassador from England a yarn about Iran, that he would get all the benefits of helping King Henry and then turn around and keep Mary in Scotland. The best option was to get the queen to Stirling Castle, which was a fortress. Oh, and when you tell Henry, keep it a secret. Thanks. So in comes the Treaty of Greenwich in July 1543. Henry VIII, in his infinite wisdom, was willing to compromise. Mary would live in Scotland until she turned 10, and then she'd go to England to get hitched to Edward. At the end of July, Marie finally took her daughter to Stirling, where they would stay until Mary left the shores of Scotland behind. In August, Mary was anointed as Queen of Scotland, and since the crown wasn't made to fit baby heads, someone held it above her head during the ceremony. In addition to juggling England, Marie was also juggling the Lord of Lennox and the Earl of Bothwell as suitors. They both wanted to marry Marie. Not out of love, that's for damn sure. But Marie wasn't having any of it. At 28, she played the game of love, but never made any promises. That's what is so incredibly brilliant about it all. The pouty Earl of Lennox left Team Scotland for Team England because, okay, after the Earl of Bothwell ran around like a boy in the schoolyard telling people he was going to marry Marie. Henry VIII was thrilled. A powerful Scottish lord on his side? Take that, Scotland. So Lennox married Lady Margaret Douglas, Henry VIII's own niece, and they had a pouty son who we'll meet again when he's all grown up. So France started sending aid, 
and the Scottish Parliament ripped up the Treaty of Greenwich like it was piece of garbage. This pissed off Henry VIII. Like, how dare those upstarts do such a thing? Those damn Scots. So began what later became known as the rough wooing. Just as pleasant as it sounds. A bunch of battles and skirmishes between Scotland and England. Henry VIII wanted Scotland. And the way to attain it was to marry his son Edward to Mary. The Scots say no way. No marriage for you. So Henry threw a huge temper tantrum, which he was absolutely known for, and sent in Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford, and young Edward's uncle. And like all of Henry's temper tantrums, it ended with a lot of dead people. So this was a direct result of the Scottish Parliament deciding the Treaty of Greenwich was bad news bears for their country and their young queen. Henry sent in troops while also fighting in France. He was stretching himself thin, maybe? Just maybe. Edward Seymour was told to burn Edinburgh to the ground, and like an excellent subject and an even better pyromaniac, he set the city and the surrounding areas on fire. But oops! No Edinburgh Castle for Seymour. Guess he didn't know his history. Alright, so Edinburgh Castle was difficult to take in a siege due to the cannons and the rock face it sits on, which is aptly known as Castle Rock. Honestly, look it up. It sits super high in the city. Yeah, like, the, it's not an extinct volcano per se, it's... A dormant volcano, I think, is how they... Is it? I think it's, I think it's a dormant volcano. Dormant? Ooh. Right? Doesn't that terrify? That's scary to be sitting on. So it's sufficiently terrifying. Well, and okay, you know what? Dormant, extinct, or not, there is no volcano as terrifying as Mount Vesuvius, in my opinion. And the people of Naples just live under it like, eh, you know, c'est la vie. Whatever happens, happens. Well, when Mount Vesuvius estoratus. Just saying. <laughs> you and your Latin. I love it. All right. Back to what we were talking about. Yeah, sorry for our tangent. <laughs> Mary was taken to the Highlands for safety, and after three weeks, Hertford was sent to France. But wait! He was back after a bit to continue the rough wing, but oops again. No lucky win for him. Finally, after a lot of dead people, there was peace between England and France and England and Scotland. Henry VIII died in January of 1547, and the young Edward VI became king when he was nine years old. Remember what we said about young kings and queens? It was a thing. Francis I of France died two months after him, and his son became King Henry II of France. And just like that, when any regime changes... Bye-bye, peace. No more peace. Bye-bye. Hertford, who had named himself Duke of Somerset at this point, was part of a council of regents instead of sole regent. Henry VIII was a smart cookie and knew better than to leave the power in the hands of any one man. So he wanted to make sure Mary married Edward. Edward Seymour, that is, not Henry VIII. He was dead. He couldn't care less at this point. <laughs> what? On the other hand, Henry II decided he was Scotland's guardian and sent aid to Scotland because he wanted baby Mary to marry none other than his son, the Dauphin Francis. All right, so back to Hertford now Somerset. 
He came and things came to a head at the Battle of Pinky Clue. I think I pronounced that wrong. Pinky Clue? You're the one who looked it up. I told you to take care of the Scottish stuff. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Pinky Clue. And no, it's not spelled like I have a clue. It's Yeah, Clue is spelled C-L-E-U-G-H. Take that, letters. All right. So in the Battle of Pinky, as it is otherwise known, the Scots lost with about 10,000 of their men dead. They were completely decimated. And to this day, the Battle of Pinky Clue is contested to be one of the most bloodiest battles between England and Scotland. And there's a lot to choose from. Because there's centuries of fighting between the two countries. You're barbaric. We shall take over. Dead. No, you won't. Dead. That that was my Scottish accent. It's a lot better than mine. (laughs) Okay, so what is the result of this? In 1548, at five and a half years old, Queen Mary was taken out of Scotland and sent to France for safety. There, she would end up living with her future husband and her future in-laws. In return, France would help kick England out of Scotland. On the crossing from Scotland to France, all but the young Queen Mary became sick on the ship. So the story goes. Lucky, lucky, little Mary. So Mary arrives in France with many of her Scottish attendants, including her maids of honor and her friends. Mary Sutton, Mary Fleming, Mary Beaton, and Mary Livingston. Remember when I said there were a lot of people running around with the same names? Exhibit A. So they became known as the Four Maries. James Stewart, one of Mary's many illegitimate siblings, actually came with her on the crossing because he was on his way to study at the university in Paris, and he was 17 at this point. Quite the age gap between brother and sister. Mary would join four of Henry II's children in the nursery at court. This included the Dauphin Francis, the princesses Elizabeth and Claude, and Louis, who actually wouldn't make it past his second birthday. Unfortunately, measles was his end. So four more children would actually be born to Henry II and Catherine de Medici, his wife and queen. Charles, Henry, Marguerite, and one last son, who was also named Francis. What is this habit of naming the child the same name as a sibling? They didn't have any other names to choose from? Was the baby naming book checked out of the Royal Library at that time? Nonsense. That is all they had in the baby book. Francis. Henry. Francis. (laughs) Charles. I... Whatever. We get five names. Use them well. (laughs) Hope you don't have more than five kids. All right, so Mary ended up rooming with Princess Elizabeth... And then a choice was made. In all things, Francis came first because he was the Dauphin. He was the heir to the throne. But after him was Mary because she was his future wife and she was a queen in her own right. So as a result, she outranked almost everyone at court aside, of course, from Francis, the king, and the queen. Mary charmed all of those around her due to her vivacious personality. It seems like all of the people who came in contact with her used words like pretty and beautiful and charming to describe her and her appearance. You know, she was very friendly, very outgoing, and basically it seemed a lot of people fell in love with this young 
queen, including Henry II. He really, really enjoyed Mary and spending time with her and chatting with her over the years as she grew up. And what's more than that, Henry II actually really loved children. He loved spending time with the kids and, you know, doing obviously not, you know, like today, he was not going to go outside and play ball with his sons or, you know, the the girls. But he did enjoy actually being with them. And he came to think of Mary as his own, especially because of how young she was when she got there. She she was literally just absorbed into the family and she was theirs and they loved her. Yeah. And I think at one point Henry actually said that uh, Mary was one of the most beautiful children he'd ever seen in his life. And uh, that's for some pretty high praise, I have to say. I mean, even her brother said that. That 17-year-old brother was like, my sister is like the most beautiful child ever. Yeah, so, you know, she's already making a splash. So, I mean, that's good. If you're going to go to France and you're going to live there and marry the future king, you, I guess, got to make a splash and have everyone falling all over you because you're just the most precocious thing ever. All right, so while in France, Mary also got to know her older half-brother, not James Stewart, the Duke of Longville, which was great for her because she actually loved being around family. You know, she was surrounded by her Guise family her entire time growing up in France, and it really made an impact on her in the sense that she really enjoyed those blood ties, those familial relationships. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't serve her well later in life, but we'll get to that. So Mary was educated with the other royal children, but first, her Scottish retinue had to go. Oh my gosh, those Scots, they weren't considered fancy and sophisticated enough for the French court. Plus, Henry wanted to make sure that his future daughter-in-law and the future Queen of France spoke French instead of her native Scots. And the people of the French court are so snooty. Oh my god, noses in the air. They thought the Scots were these barbaric savages who dressed funny and had a funny language. Now, when it came to religion, Mary was raised as a Catholic and learned so many different languages, and this included Greek and Latin. But she didn't learn English. She actually started learning English in 1568. You know, this is far removed from young five-and-a-half-year-old Mary. So in addition to... Uh, languages, Mary also loved to read. She was a huge poetry fan, uh, which actually included reading and writing it. She loved to dance, go hawking, and horse riding. You know, all the things we enjoy in today's society, naturally. And uh, also, you know, in, like basically it was like in Pride and Prejudice. She became a very accomplished woman because she could embroider things and do other needlework things and draw. So by this point, Mary was ready to become queen and open her own art studio. Um, Other, you know, fantastical accomplishments included um, other things she loved, such as having a killer fashion sense. She loved dogs, which I totally share with her, so thumbs up, Mary. And playing games of chance like cards and dice. In 1550, Mary was finally reunited with her mother. Marie came for a visit for a little over a year, and in April of 1551, a dastardly plot. That sounds so dastardly. Renee has very dramatic voices. Was discovered. This plot, I mean. Yeah, not her voices. To poison Queen Mary. Luckily, everything was gravy, at least for a little while anyway. 
because, you know, people love to try to assassinate. In September of 1551, Marie de Guise suffered another tragedy, like this poor woman. Her son, the Duke of Longueville, passed away. He hadn't even reached his 16th birthday. Marie considered retiring to France, but instead returned to Scotland for her daughter. Marie lived for Mary. This was literally her only living child, and so she would do everything in her power to keep the Scottish throne safe for her. When mother and daughter said goodbye to one another, it was the last time they ever saw one another. Now, Mary's upbringing was overseen by her Guise uncles in the sense that they taught her what to say and when to say it and what to write. So their words and thoughts, not hers, she opened her mouth and it was them. And for all of her time at the French court and being raised by her Guise relations, no one thought to teach the young queen all the ins and outs of double dealing with court life. So she was literally raised to be a queen consort of France, not the, own, not the you know, one and only queen of Scotland. She was witty, she was charming, but she grew up within the safety of her own family, and she was never really taught how to govern in her own way. Yeah, so, you know, all those political intrigues going on throughout her entire life, uh, Mary was, could be quite naive about them, even in adulthood, and, you know, which we'll see later. And, as has happened several times in this episode alone, another king died. This time, it was Edward VI. He was only 15 years old. Today, we call it tuberculosis. Back then, they called it consumption. And England was just thrown into chaos. Mary Tudor was set to inherit, but the Duke of Northumberland had other plans. So, John Dudley, who is the Duke, he decided that Lady Jane Grey, married to his own son and the niece of Henry VIII, would become queen instead of the Catholic Mary Tudor. He really should have stopped while he was still had a head, because he really lost. Okay, Lady Jane and her husband were sent to the tower and later executed. I think she was queen for like nine days. They really... Don't know the exact days. It, they say that basically it could be a couple days longer, but nine is what, you know, we generally go with. Okay, less than two weeks. Let's just go with that. All right, and then John Dudley became, as Adrian loves to put it, one head shorter. It, it, yeah, I don't know why. It's very morbid, but I like that phrasing. She's weird. <clears throat> but I like it too. It's fine. All right, so now there's Mary Tudor or Mary I of England. She became queen, and with her Protestant sister, Princess Elizabeth, as her heir. Not sure if we mentioned this earlier, but Edward VI was also a Protestant, so England constantly had this battle of Protestantism versus Catholicism. Since the death of Henry, basically. It's an entire thing, and we'll continue to go into this. All right, so now it's April of 1554, and Marie de Guise finally became the regent. Aaron was out. Hasta la vista. Get lost. No more meddling for him. And, okay, so Mary was a huge spender. She loved to spend money, okay? 
on clothes and horses and she liked to give to her servants. She was super kind and giving. She had such a big heart and she loved to make sure that her servants were being paid well. Yeah, the only problem here is that, you know, Henry II was like, um, who's gonna foot this bill? And it certainly wasn't gonna be the Duke of Guise. So they were looking to Marie de Guise to fork over money for Mary and her household. And in the meantime, Scotland really doesn't have as much as Mary is spending. And I don't know that they really had enough at all because they were, you know, suffering financially. And this was also a huge, you know, sticking point when Marie became the regent. So she's trying to find money to send to Mary while also, you know, still trying to make sure that her, you know, Scotland is still staying afloat, essentially, um, enough until Mary is grown and can return as their queen, if she were to return. Okay. So remember how earlier we mentioned that Henry VIII was getting reports that Mary was, you know, sickly and she wasn't going to live? She was actually a relatively healthy child growing up, but she did have bouts of sickness, which would often set in when she was overly stressed or psychologically distressed, just pretty much when something major was going on, her body just kind of reacted to it. Um, and, like, her sicknesses became worse when she was older. And in most cases, she seemed to bounce back rather quickly. And at some point in her life, she did catch smallpox. Now, Elizabeth Tudor would as well when she was Queen of England. Luckily, Mary didn't suffer the scars as many people did that survived smallpox. Now it is 1558 and the day has finally arrived. Mary and Francis were married at Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, Lord James Stewart, that's Mary's half-brother, was actually outside the cathedral at this time when the happy event took place. He was 27 at this point. And speaking of Stuart, the last name that is. While in France, Mary actually Frenchified the spelling of her last name. So it was originally spelled... S, T is in Tom, E, W, A, R is in Robert, T is in Tom. In France, Mary changed it to what we are more familiar with, which is S, T is in Tom, U, A, R is in Robert, T is in Tom. Same pronunciation, completely different spelling. Also, Mary decided to wear a white dress on her wedding day, and uh, this was a little shocking for the people of the French court, considering, um, you know, it was the color of mourning in France at that time. Today, you know, a lot of women wear white on their wedding day. Uh, back then, in France, no one did, so that was a big what-the-fuck. But they rolled with it, so good for them. Um, anyway, before they were married, Mary signed a secret contract that basically gave Scotland to France if Mary died without any heirs. What? Did they tell her, here, sign this, but don't read it? Reading things isn't important? Mary was 15 at this time. Okay, fine, we can excuse her age to a point. Um, but... I don't know, I don't know if they were just, like, we know better. She was used to people putting things in front of her to sign. Who knows? Um, And Francis is actually 14 at this time. Now, after the wedding, there were banquets and masks and so many good times for the people of the court. And then it was finally time for the wedding night. Now, royal wedding rituals were interesting, to say the least. First, their bed was blessed with holy water. Um, You know, well, actually, it was blessed and then holy water was flicked onto the bed. And then the court put Mary and Francis to bed. They tucked them in. 
And then they left. And, you know, they're all thinking, hopefully she'll be pregnant with a son in no time. But this was super tame in comparison to some other courts where that all would happen. And then the bed curtains would be drawn together and everyone would stand around outside the bed waiting for them to do the deed. And yeah, Awkward doesn't even begin to cover it. So did they or didn't they? We'll never know. They may have consummated the marriage with no baby to show for it, or maybe Mary remained a virgin while she was married to Francis. They didn't really take studious notes uh, post-consummation. So, as in most royal courts, the king and queen slept in completely different beds in completely different rooms. I guess that's one way to get peace and quiet. But there was a passage between their rooms for the king to use whenever he decided it was time to do his duty. Queens didn't actually have a choice when it came to sex with the king. In all honesty, women in general didn't have a choice when it came to, you know, sex with their husbands. Um, It was their duty, too, for the queens, anyway. Um, You know, and basically just slide back and think of insert country you need an heir for there, you know. Just... Remember, you're doing what you need to do, your job, which is to have babies. Uh, Kings, on the other hand, could, as they say, take their pleasures elsewhere, which is how Mary ended up with so many different half-brothers and sisters. And she did have a few few half-sisters, or was it just the one? It might have been just Jean. Just Jean. So she did have a half-sister. Her name was Jean. And... Later on, when Mary finally returned to Scotland, uh, she and Jean, this is a side note, she and Jean were actually uh, quite close. They were each other's confidants, um, you know, for most of their lives. And anyway, back to 1558. So with the two joined forever in holy matrimony, bliss, Scottish Parliament actually offered up the crown matrimonial for Francis once the Scottish commissioners got back to Scotland. So this would make him king of Scots. But in the end, due to, you know, some background things, political things, it was never sent. Side note, Renee has a side note. She's raising her hand. She so wants to do this side note because this is like her favorite thing ever. Renee has a side note about the title of Queen King of Scots. I do. Okay, I do. So it's interesting to note that it is, you know, Mary Queen of Scots and not Mary Queen of Scotland. And the reason for that is... Wow, I sound really academic. So the reason for that is that the Scots believed that you could rule a people, but not a land. Asgard is a people, not a place. So it's pretty much along the same lines. All right, I'm sorry. Back to you, Adrian. Thank you. Anyway, so the people in Scotland rejoiced when they heard about this marriage finally happening. Huzzah! Huzzah! Oh, I like that we did that on, on time. This is awesome. Um, None of this was practiced, ladies and gentlemen. Totally on the fly. I mean, no, really, it wasn't fly. Their queen was married. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, so much rejoicing. People were dancing. But the nobles now are starting to realize that, wait a minute, hold the phones. If Mary's married in Scotland to Francis, who's the future king of France, and she's then going to be the future queen consort of France, when the fuck does she come home? So it was only at this point that they realized that Mary might never return to Scotland. So this got their panties a little bit in a bunch. So after the wedding, Francis and Mary became known as the King Dauphin and the Queen Dauphine of Scotland. 
Um, and speaking of Francis, he didn't get any better with age. So we never actually covered his physical appearance, but um, he had a stutter. He was quite an awkward individual and he was quite sickly growing up. Um, you know, he was not going to be on the cover of Hottest Hunky Royals at any point in his life. Um, and I don't know that he had that many redeeming qualities the way he's described because his main interactions were with Mary, who he really seemed to genuinely like and care for, and his mother, Catherine de' Medici. Outside of that, he really couldn't stand anyone. And that included his siblings. Yeah, so if you've seen Rain, um, the TV show that was on the CW, and you see this, like, really lovely, you know, actor who's blonde, and I think he's blue-eyed or something, or brown-eyed, who knows. This nice chiseled person. Yeah, <laughs> chiseled person. And, and he's very good looking, right? And he's quite dashing and dapper to become the King of France. That's the kind of King of France you want. Yet, yeah, no, the real life King of France, or I mean, Francis, looked nothing like that. Okay. I think in some aspects, Antonia Frazier refers to him as a creature. Isn't but, that just so sweet? Yeah, very endearing term. But uh, anyway, so on November 17th, 1558, Mary Tudor died, which left her sister Elizabeth as the Queen of England at age 25. Another smart, witty, good-looking lady, and though she was smaller than Mary in height, Mary was quite tall for a woman of that time, uh, which she actually got from her mother. Marie de Guise was actually tall, and she had auburn hair, which Mary inherited from her. Um, and, you know, here's where things start to get dicey. Since Elizabeth was a Protestant, Mary's Guise uncle, who was also a cardinal, the Cardinal of Lorraine, decided that Mary was actually the true heir to England's throne. Uh, she was Catholic and legitimate, um, whereas Elizabeth was actually considered a bastard by Catholics because, A, Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn while still, in their view, married to Catherine of Aragon, his first wife and Mary's mother. Um, Catholics didn't recognize the Anglican Church, and they also didn't recognize divorce, um, you know, unless granted by the Pope, which the Pope did not grant. The Pope did not allow him to get divorced from Catherine of Aragon and marry another woman. Um, and then B, Elizabeth was also declared a bastard when Henry had Anne Boleyn executed and their marriage annulled. And the dad of the year award goes to... So the Royal Coat of Arms of England was put on their plates, Mary's and Francis's, um, and their furniture, in addition, of course, to the Scottish and French heraldic arms. And this was really not the best way to make friends with the new English queen. So Henry II, you know, he took a look at the political landscape and decided to take a step back from this since he didn't want to get into any more conflicts with Spain or England. Um, at that moment, anyway, you know, these kings all say one thing and eventually do another. And at that point, um, Spain was still friends with Elizabeth a little bit uh, because Philip II, king of Spain, was actually Elizabeth's brother-in-law because he was Mary Tudor's husband uh, while she was living. Okay, so on June 30th, 1559, this was a day of merrymaking, drinking, jousting, beautiful maidens. Probably, anyway, to, who knows. But definite jousting. And Henry II, who was 40 years old, decided he was going to enjoy some sport as well. He wanted to joust, and you know, you have everyone telling him, don't do it. Yeah, they were like, Henry, no, this is a really bad idea. This and, is bad. And do you know what Henry said? I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. 
So it was a complete and total disaster. When the lance hit the king's armor, it slid up and splintered when it hit his helmet. A piece of it actually went into his eye. I suppose he should have listened to his wife and his mistress. Diane de Poitiers. And everyone else that was saying, don't do it. Just don't do it. But you know, he's a king. He knew better. And look at where it got him. All right, so unfortunately, there was nothing that could be done to save the king. He was in and out of lucidity with the family pretty much on alert at all times. And then on July 10th, he died of a stroke. The king is dead. Long live King Francis and Queen Mary. Now, Mary was 16 and Francis was 15. On September 15th, 1559, Francis became King Francis II at... Reims. Thank you, Adrian. Which was the usual place to crown the King of France. Now, this kind of like, was there a bad omen or two right before the ceremony? It had to be put off by a day since it was pouring rain and the guy who was supposed to give the king his crown got sick. Instead, Mary's uncle, the Cardinal of Lorraine, got to anoint him and put the crown on the new king's head. However, the crown was so heavy, four people had to hold it over Francis's head. And once Francis was sitting on his royal throne, the cardinal called out, Vivat Rex in Latin. May the king live forever. And in answer, the rest of the people assembled yelled out, Vive le roi. Long live the king. Since France was set in its really old ways, Mary wasn't crowned alongside Francis. We think this is ridiculous, but this is what they did. As the king, the most important guy in the country, he took precedence. Queens of France were anointed and crowned at a later date, in a different place, the Abbey of Saint-Denis. Catherine de' Medici, for example, wasn't crowned until two years, guys, two years after Henry II. Oh, yeah, and because of this old ancient law they had in place, women in France could never hold the throne of France in their own right, unlike the more progressive Scotland and England, and they thought the Scots were barbarians. So what does this mean for France? Once the male line is gone for, from the House of Valois, which was the royal house occupying the throne at this time, it passed to the House of Bourbon. Daughters would have kept this from happening, but oh no, they couldn't possibly be women sitting on the throne by themselves. Heaven forbid. Alright, so since the court was still in mourning for the late King Henry II, Catherine de' Medici was wearing black, which was the color of mourning in Italy where she was born and raised. She actually wore black for the rest of her life after this. Mary, however, wore white, which was the color of mourning in France, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, so she had a white wedding dress, and then she had a white dress when King Henry II died. Reuse, recycle. I don't know that it was the same dress. I'm just saying. And it's around this time that Catherine really starts becoming anti-Mary, because before this, she was very affectionate towards Mary from everything that we've read. Like, she doted on her. It was great. But now the, the power dynamic is changing, so obviously Catherine's feelings are also going to change. So, with Francis crowned, Mary is now Queen of France, and more importantly, she's a queen in her own country. What interests will she further first? Who knows? That's what Catherine is wondering. So Catherine was adamant that she'd be queen mother, not the dowager queen. 
This way, she could still be a major player within French politics. So almost as soon as Mary became queen, Henry II's mistress, Diane de Poitiers, had to hand over the jewels Henry had given her. Um, a bit callous? Eh, meh. You know, it was the way things were done at that time. Um, you know, it was at any royal court, really. You know, both for the mistress and the queen. The royal jewels belonged to the crown, not the former queen, and most certainly not to, you know, a mistress or any other woman. So there was a banquet held in honor of Francis becoming king, you know, hooray, long live the king, except Francis yawned his way through the entire banquet that was held in his honor. And then he decided that he was tired and he was going to turn in early for the night. What a party animal, that guy. The whole court must have been so confused and had the biggest what-the-fuck moment of their lives. So, with Henry II dead, the Guise family was up to its old tricks. Naughty Guise. Her uncles basically made decisions for Mary. Uh, Queen Mary who? Nah. We don't need to consult the Queen of France and Scotland about anything. We'll just make up everything as we go along and she'll sign things. Uh, she was basically there to look pretty. Kind of like, they're there, why don't you embroider something? And Francis? Well, my king, you should be a man of leisure. Go on a hunt or something. Neither one of them made the important decisions for their country. And once again, here we have the English royal coat of arms showing up in France with Francis and Mary. In the meantime... There were some really shady things going on in Scotland. With the new Queen Elizabeth on the throne, a Protestant, the Protestant lords of Scotland figured this was their moment. They were tired of the French presence of Marie de Guise's regency, and who's the most natural person to partner with for a coup than their Protestant neighbor to the south? Marie de Guise was actually doing a pretty good job, honestly, of keeping the peace and running the country as smoothly and effectively as she could in a country where the nobles stood for themselves first. So why did they want to fire her? Well, she was trying to really too hard to get the highlands and the borderlands to cooperate with one another. Now remember, that's north and south. Completely, you know, different spheres. Um, she was also trying to force the lords to join Team Monarchy over Team Myself. Okay, so it's not so much Team Myself as Team My Own Lands. But still, you know, this is centuries of blood ties and clan ties at work. But... Even more, the taxes. Taxes were raised, and that tends to get a whole lot of panties in a bunch. Um, anyone here of the American Revolution? Mm. So they got together, and they formed kind of like a boy band, at least that's what it sounds like. There were 24 lords who made up the lords of the congregation. And who was one of the main participants? None other than Mary's own half-brother, James Stewart. Okay, so here is where we see James starting to pop up in Scottish politics. He's back in Scotland. He's done his schooling in Paris. And uh, he's decided that he's throwing his hat in the ring. He told Marie de Guise that he'd back her up. If, okay, if, there's a caveat, she listened to the lords and basically gave in to their demands. Um, yeah, big no on that front. So James worked with the lords while writing to William Cecil, who was Queen Elizabeth's chief advisor. And what did he want? If well, for England to send aid to Scotland and help the lords kick the French out once and for all. Double dealing. 
Um, Elizabeth was actually a little iffy about this because sending troops into Scotland meant going against another sovereign. Now, Elizabeth was something known as a real politic, uh, meaning she was Protestant, but her politics didn't center around religion. So defending fellow Protestants, sure. Running roughshod over the right of monarchy as a result and putting religion first? Not for Elizabeth. You know, the rights of monarchy supersede that for her. Um, you know, also, I'm sure she's very conscious of her own rights as a monarch and the questions that people have about them throughout all of Europe. Um, now, very unfortunately, Marie de Guise uh, was actually quite sick at this point, poor lady. So removing her as the regent wasn't that hard. Um, I think they said that, you know, she was suffering from dropsy or it might have been dropsy. In addition, Elizabeth did eventually decide to send troops to Scotland. Um, all of this led to the Treaty of Berwick in 1560, February of 1560, between the Lords and England, uh, which basically gave England permission to come charging in whenever it seemed like the freedom of the Scots was in jeopardy, as it was, so they claimed, under the regency of Marie de Guise. Here came another blow for Mary. On June 11, 1560... Marie de Guise passed from this world, and what was even worse? I don't know why they did this, but they kept it from Mary until 10 days after the news reached France. Now, when she finally found out, she was devastated. You know, no matter the distance, no matter how little she and her mother had seen of one another, they loved each other so, so much and were so close that, you know, they kept in contact all the time writing to one another. And as we know, the last time Mary saw her mother was when she was nine. And here she is becoming a woman, and she doesn't have her mother to lean on for support. On July 6th of the same year, the Treaty of Edinburgh was signed, which ended the hostilities. Francis and Mary would stop using the English coat of arms, and France acknowledged that Elizabeth was the true queen of England. So finally, she got that recognition. Um, now, French soldiers in Scotland had to get out of Dodge, and the lords of the congregation would rule over Scotland until Mary returned to take up the reins. Um, you know, England would, uh, as part of this agreement, keep an eye on Scotland and step in whenever necessary to defend Protestantism and keep France the hell out. Uh, now, the awesome thing? Um, not so awesome thing, really. Neither Mary nor Francis were asked about the treaty and what they thought of it. Uh, they were never asked if it was a good idea, a bad idea, and if they agreed to it. They were simply told this was what was happening, and they had to stand behind it. All right, so to open a new line of friendship, Mary sent a portrait of herself to Elizabeth with the hopes, expectation that Elizabeth would do the same. And from here on out, Mary always called Elizabeth her sister queen and referred to her as sister in their letters to one another. And through all of this, Mary refused to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh. The treaty may have been agreed to by representatives, but England also wanted Mary herself to accept the terms. When Sir Nicholas Throckmorton, England's ambassador to France, met with Mary to get her to ratify the treaty, she made a move worthy of Marie de Guise. You know, per John Guy, Mary used her charm and responded with, what the king my husband resolves in that matter, I will conform myself onto, for his will is mine. Boom. Right? The perfect excuse. My husband makes all the decisions, so I can't say yay or nay. And even more perfect, Francis II couldn't make any decisions on his own if you drew him a very detailed map and color-coded all his notes. Poor Francis. Mm. But at least Mary got out of it. What, the marriage? 
or signing uh, the treaty. The treaty. <laughs> and even the marriage. And I was like, whoa, that's quite morbid. Well, she did just. All right. So in 1560, there was kind of like a, there was some hope. Maybe, just maybe, Mary was pregnant with the future heir of France. However, it wasn't meant to be. At the end of September, Mary realized an heir was not in the cards and went about her days as normal. Alas, she had more tragedies in store. Around the same time, Francis became really sick. He actually was called Le Petit... Okay, I'm sorry, Adrian, hold on, take it for me. Yeah. Le Petit Roi. Thank you. She does the French, I do the Gallic. Oui. By people as a boy since he was so small and sickly. While at church in the middle of November in 1560, Francis was taken very ill. He started having sharp pains in his head and fluid was coming out of his ear. It, it was all very messy and awful. You know, it could have been an ear infection. It could have been a brain tumor. We're really not sure. There's no way to be sure. But now he was stuck in bed and things were just becoming progressively worse for him. He then started having all these terrible seizures. His nurses actually ended up being Mary and his mother Catherine, though they first fought over who would get to do the honors, which is totally the appropriate thing to do when Francis is there in so much pain. And then at this point, you know, we're not sure Francis cared one way or the other since he couldn't talk to anyone or move, but he just stared at the people around him. And it's just so incredibly unfortunate that this boy who was sick his entire life, like, th this is what he has to go through. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the easiest um, end for young Francis. You know, like, the doctors of the time used the highly practical and 100% curative medicinal option of bleeding Francis. Because if you're sick, what's losing a lot of blood, uh, um, you know, any amount of blood, really? It'll help. Right, let's just cut you open and the sickness will just come right out of you. By the time December came around, you know, poor Francis, he was suffering. He was in so much pain constantly, and there was still the fluid discharge. Ugh. And, like, I say thankfully simply because, you know, his pain was finally put to an end. He finally passed away on December 5th, 1560. Yeah, no one knows exactly when that happened, just that it happened, you know, that day, probably during the night at some point. Now, Francis is gone. So who's next? His younger brother, Charles, became King Charles IX at 10 years old. But then there was an even bigger question. What is to be done with Mary, Queen of Scots, and now Dowager Queen of France? Does she marry Charles? Big fat note from Catherine de Medici, who was now the regent. All right, then there's the next option. Don Carlos of Spain. The son of King Philip II? Yeah, Catherine wasn't a fan of that option either. In any case, the day after Francis passed, Mary gathered the queen's jewels and handed them over without even being asked. She then cloistered herself off in a separate room for 40 days, as was the custom of mourning. You know, by the time she came out, she'd made the decision to, she's going home to Scotland. That's it. It was, it was time to, you know, go home to Scotland and actually take up the mantle and be Queen of Scots. All right, so technically, as the Dowager Queen of France, Mary could remain there for the rest of her life. 
especially as this was specifically included in her marriage contract. But was it worth it to keep butting heads with Catherine de' Medici? Plus, her role in the French court wouldn't be a big one anyway. Not that it was, you know, much of one from the start. And she, honestly, she had her own country. Like, it, it was just time to go. And, you know, Mary grew up safe and warm within the French court. Closeted. Super safe. Like, padding, all right, around her. That's it. All right. She could still be, we said this before, she, was, she could be just so naive. And she just continuously put her trust in the wrong people. In this instance, it was actually her brother, James Stewart. She figured if she came back, everything would be just fine, and he'd be more than happy to see his sister return and take up her rightful place, right? I mean, hey, bro, I'm your sister. I'm coming home. I'm the queen anyway. You knew this. Um, you know, they'd kiss and make up. Now, returning home as a widow, who was only 18 years old, I might add, uh, meant she was open for another marriage. She was open for business. So names started being thrown at her, ones that included Charles IX and Don Carlos, as mentioned earlier, of course, as well as the kings of Denmark and Sweden, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, who stepped in for his sons, and Lord Henry Darnley. Um, you know, this is the son of the Earl of Lennox and Lady Margaret Douglas, that pouty lord we mentioned earlier. Now he's growing up. Um, I think he was, what, 17 at this time? Yeah. Yeah, so he's 17 now, you know almost a marriageable age, because for some reason, at that point, 17 was a good, if not too old an age for a woman sometimes. Um, but for a man, he was, you know, I guess still sowing his wild oats. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, no. Uh, at this point, Mary wasn't ready for marriage just yet. Um, so instead, she focused on returning to Scotland, starting with making sure that she was surrounded by men who knew Scotland and all the intricate ins and outs of her political sphere. Once again, the English ambassador came at her about the Treaty of Edinburgh. Ratify. Ratify. Uh, no. Big no on her front. Um, so instead of Francis as her excuse this time, she said she couldn't possibly make such a decision without the advice of her counselors. And she's still in France. Yes, that can't happen anytime soon. Her Catholic lords, ready for her to finally come home, got together and asked Mary to get to Scotland ASAP and to leave her brother... Um, James, outside her circle of trust. Um, you know, she made a good choice in this sense. She decided to ignore them um, regarding James, uh, since alienating her brother would honestly end in disaster. You know, at this point, he was one of the most powerful men in Scotland, and the country was now officially Protestant. So, you know, bad news bears all around, really, to kick James to the curb. Instead, she actually turned to him for advice, and here her darling brother took the opportunity to weasel his way into her trust and affections. Uh, I mean, gain her confidence. Um, Mary put a lot of stock into blood ties, as I said earlier, so she was already more inclined to trust him over Joe Schmo, lord of something or other. Um, you know, that she didn't know, hadn't met, and is this hypothetical creature that lives in Scotland. Um, so what was the outcome of their talks and his schmoozing? Uh, Mary would come back to Scotland and keep from rocking the religious boat. Uh, Scotland was Protestant. Scotland was going to stay Protestant. And there would be absolutely no Mary Tudor-like plays to return Scotland to Catholicism. Peace would be kept, uh, which was the practical approach, to be honest. Um, but Mary would still be able to attend Mass in her own private chapel. It was kind of like, you can be a Catholic, just don't be overt about it. 
Uh, To prep for her return, her lords, knowing full well that Mary didn't want to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh, came up with a new agreement. Uh, Mary would take a step back and recognize Elizabeth as the rightful queen, and thus Mary would become the heir to the throne unless or until, really, Elizabeth married and had children. The time had almost come to return to Scotland. Um, Now, Mary sent a letter to Elizabeth asking for a diplomatic passport that would allow her to land in England just in case anything happened to the ships, like a storm, or, you know, she got sick on her way home. Um, You know, Elizabeth uh, played the game, we'll say. Um, You know, she was like, sure, you know, totally all right if you get behind the Treaty of Edinburgh. No treaty, no passport. And to sweeten the deal, it was proposed that Mary and Elizabeth could also meet when she landed in England. Still no, Mary? Fine, have your passport. Um, But by the time Elizabeth had changed her mind and sent it to Mary, Mary was already on her way back to Scotland. Um, And, of course, the four Marie's traveled back with her. Um, You know, and um, as we said, Mary liked to spend. So there were a ton of ships for all her shit which included horses and quite a bit of furniture. And supposedly, as her ship sailed away from France, Mary apparently looked back at France's shores and said, Adieu, France. It's all over now. Adieu, France. I think I'll never see your shores again. I don't know about you, but that gives me some chills. Talk about an omen. Mary reached the 4th of Fife on August 19, 1561, After 13 years in another country, the Queen of Scots had returned. Long live the Queen. So when Mary finally arrived back home in Scotland, her people were totally surprised. What? The Queen? Here? On Scottish land? You sure? Party time! There were many celebrations everywhere. Music, all of it. In fact, when the Queen's galleys were sailing up the Firth of Forth, they actually fired off their guns to announce the Queen's return. And with her return to Scotland, she brought with her some French traditions, such as a royal entry into the city of Edinburgh as a way to show herself off to the Scots. Her people loved her. She was charming and vivacious. And oh, doesn't everyone want a beautiful young queen who's the most beautiful thing they've ever seen since Marie de Guise? And big plus, French as their queen had become, she was still able to speak to her own people in her native Scots. The Palace of Holyrood House became her new home, and it was the palace she spent the most time in. She had so many beautiful, expensive things she liked to buy. She really, really did. More than Scotland had ever seen, even with Marie de Guise. And her clothing, holy shit, did Mary love to buy and wear clothes. She had more clothing than most queens probably should. And as joyous as her return was, there were some darker elements to contend with. Throughout her reign, Mary would butt heads with a Protestant preacher by the name of John Knox. He was very vocal in his opinions of Catholicism and its idolatrous nature. And more important than that, females were the weaker, baser sex in his eyes. And a queen, especially a Catholic one, was not fit to rule the world of men and thus could be removed from her position. And he was not at all afraid to say this to her face, which he did, or out in public for all to hear. Yeah, so basically he was like, um, yeah, so you've got two things working against you, madam. You are a woman, ugh, and a Catholic, wah. Okay, he was not shy 
in his hatred of either. I mean, you know, when she did arrive, he also was kind of like, wow, she's so amazing and interesting. But she's Catholic and a woman. Okay. Elizabeth, he kind of took a step back because he was like, a woman, but she's a Protestant, so that's okay. But Mary's a Catholic. Yeah. If only she was of the true faith. Protestantism. That would make it a little bit better. Okay, so now on to her privy council. So when Mary appointed her council, she made sure to keep somewhat of a balance. Um, You know, 12 people were appointed and seven of them were Protestant. She was trying to keep a nice balance between the religious factions. That was really her entire, what she wanted her reign to be, just to keep peace. She didn't want to force any one religion on anyone. She just wanted everyone to just do what they're doing and just... Why can't we all get along? Utopia. It's not utopia. She wasn't aiming for utopia. That was an unrealistic thing. But yeah, it was basically like, let's all be friends. Right? Let's just not stir the pot. We're all Scots. We can do this. Yeah. (laughs) She really was just trying to just not stir the pot. That's really what it was all about. So long as she could practice the way she wanted to and everyone else could do what they do, she was happy. And yet again... The Treaty of Edinburgh. That damn paper. God, someone needs to burn it. It came into play once again, and it would continue to do so for a very long time. So Elizabeth agreed that they would both choose commissioners to look over the treaty once more. They were heading towards renegotiation at long last. But... Eventually, Elizabeth changed her mind, as Elizabeth often did, and told Mary that the only way forward was to ratify the treaty. So back and forth, they went about this document. Mary wanted to be the heir without giving away any of her power. And I mean, can you blame her for that? Not even a little bit. I mean, as a queen, the last thing you want to do is cede any amount of power to anyone. That includes your own nobles, and that especially includes the ruler of a foreign land. And Elizabeth really needed to ensure that everyone saw her as the rightful queen of England. You know, no questions asked. There are no other legitimate claimants to support and supplant Elizabeth. Like, this was it. Especially since Elizabeth was unmarried without any children of her own to act as heirs. And Elizabeth, she really was the champion of playing the I want, I might marry I might not game. It's like when you pick up the flower and you go, he loves me, he loves me not. That was Elizabeth, except she went, I might marry, I might not. Drove her privy counselors and especially Cecil crazy. All right, so here's the other thing. Henry VIII's will basically excluded Mary from the English line of succession. Um, If all his kids died without any heirs of their own, then his sister's line would inherit. His sister Mary Tudor, that is, the Duchess of Suffolk, not his other sister Margaret, who once upon a time was married to James IV of Scotland. So who's up to bat then? Uh, That would be Lady Catherine Grey and her sister, Mary Grey. Apparently, Elizabeth couldn't stand either one of her cousins and would have rather had Mary as the heir apparent. She hated the Grey sisters. Uh, Plus side, Mary was already a queen in her own right, so she knew how to be a queen. Who was the better choice with such a resume, honestly? Now, Mary figured that if the two queens could only meet one-on-one, they'd be able to hash everything out and create this great bond between the two of them, no problem. 
And Elizabeth wasn't necessarily against it. Her advisor, Cecil, was, but not Elizabeth. She actually was on board with this idea. I'm sure she was also curious about Mary. Is she really as beautiful as people say? Hmm. Best to find out in person. So starts another back and forth. Yes, we'll meet. At this time. At this place. Oh, no. Need to cancel. Rain check? Twice the meeting was postponed, and each time it was due to the same event. The Duke of Guise's men were involved in shooting over 100 French Huguenots, a.k.a. French Protestants. Until this point, Mary was so eager to meet her cousin and come to a resolution that she was telling all of her suitors to hit the road. Like, nah, my dance card is filled. Thank you. Um, now, when the meeting was postponed the second time, because at that time it was like, oh, you know, it can't happen now in a year. So Mary was absolutely devastated um, when it was moved again and she, because she was so looking forward to it. She really wanted to meet Elizabeth. She honestly believed that if they could just meet one another face to face, that, you know, there would be this accord between these two queens, these cousins. And... I can only imagine the hope she held on to. Um, But there was never any meeting, ever, at all, between the two of them. They never saw each other's faces except in a portrait, no matter what any Hollywood films might depict. So in September 1561, she, Mary that is, elevated her half-brother, James, to the title of Earl of Moray, and as a result, will be referring to him as Moray from here on out. In between all the politicking and landmine stepping, Mary loved to be outdoors, whether in France or Scotland. So throughout her life, she loved to ride horses and go on walks. Um, One of her favorite sports actually included horse riding. Others were hawking, archery, and hunting. You know, the most popular sports of today's world. Every single day, she'd go out riding. Oh, um, also, she loved the great Scottish game of golf. Uh, Now, if it was raining, obviously she couldn't go riding, so she'd stay indoors. There were things to do inside, um, like playing chess and cards. And having grown up in France, our queen naturally wanted to bring all the things she loved from the country that raised her, like dances and masks, uh, which she would fund and put on throughout her reign in Scotland. So in January 1562, a bill came before English Parliament known as the Act of Exclusion, and it's exactly as it sounds. God, England, come on. It was meant to keep Mary out of the line of succession. Um, And, you know, Mary had enough. She sent one of her people out of Scotland with a letter and made a decision. It was time to hunt for a husband. So she was still a young woman at this point, you know, the queen of her own country, and uh, as a result, a very appealing marriage prospect for the royal men of Europe. And more than that, Mary's claim to the English throne was even more attractive. Little Scotland? Maybe. Bigger and more powerful Scotland? Give me that country. At this exact time, she decided a shakeup was in order for her government. So her brother, the Earl of Moray, was losing favor with his sister. Finally, Mary, finally! You know, she was starting to see him for what he was, which was a man looking out for numero uno. His policy of being England's best friend forever wasn't doing anything for her or for Scotland, definitely not serving the right needs. So it was time for some fresh blood to enter the circle of advisors, which once again included a balance of Catholics and Protestants. Now, who did Mary set her eyes on? None other than Don Carlos, the son of Philip II. But there were some roadblocks. Her own family, actually. They were very against a marriage with Spain for Mary. 
And you know what? They had a better idea. How about a marriage to the Archduke Charles of Austria? And they took it one step further. They actually already reached out to Austria already. They didn't ask Mary. They didn't, you know, say, by the way, if you agree, we can do this thing for you. They, they did that thing. And then later told her they did that thing. Now, who the hell is Archduke Charles? He's the son of Ferdinand I, the Holy Roman Emperor. And he's not a second son. He's the third son. Who knows? Maybe that would have been a good thing. You know, maybe he would have been cool with helping govern yet sit back and let Mary do her thing. Or as a third son, maybe that meant he was even more power hungry and ready to strike out on his own. Either way, Archduke Charles was a big no. So even though he was a cousin of Philip, still a no because he's not the right guy with the right power for Mary. She only wanted Don Carlos as her husband, and honestly, who could blame her? With Spain backing her in Scotland, she'd gain more support from her fellow Catholic rulers, and it would very likely make England think twice about mucking up the waters. Plus, maybe the English crown would finally be hers one day. She would become the heir apparent. And then came another blow for Mary. My God, this poor poor woman, no matter her politics and how much of a wedge had been shoved in between her and her Guise family, she loved them anyway. So when her uncle, the Duke of Guise, was assassinated, she took it so hard. I mean, honestly, like, he was one of the men that helped raise her. He was always there. And little by little, the people she once placed her trust in were going away. So the negotiation with Spain was kind of like Harry taking on Lord Voldemort in the Sorcerer's Stone. What was going on between Mary and Philip was a complete secret, so naturally most people already knew. Isn't that always the way? Especially Elizabeth, who told Mary's ambassador to England that it had to stop at once, okay? And Elizabeth and the English government had this interesting tendency to treat Scotland and Mary like they were in some way tied to England and England's wants and desires. Like, what? Why? Because, honestly, it came down to the fact that Elizabeth knew she currently was holding all of the cards. You want to be my heir? Awesome. Do as I say. Not as I do. Okay, thanks. So, Mary in a fit of anger, ask the wrong question. If I can't marry Don Carlos, then fucking who? Although, granted, she probably asked a lot more diplomatically. You know, but here's the problem. This opened a door. Elizabeth saw that she stepped right through it with her stipulations regarding suitable prospects. Now, Elizabeth did have something to hold over her, and the criteria for a match made in Elizabeth's world was this. He would be an Englishman from Elizabeth's own court, who was basically Team England and all about making peace between the two countries. And if there was no one to fit the bill, then and only then could Mary ask, ask England to marry someone outside of the British Isles. Now, again, this is Elizabeth an anointed queen, telling another anointed queen of her own damn country what the hell to do. Who the hell to marry? Seriously, who the hell to do? (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. No, I'm not, okay? 
This is absolutely ridiculous. And this suitor then had to take up residence in Scotland with Mary once they were married. There would be no living in separate countries, aka no current or future kings for Mary. And they also had to get specific about the no list, okay? Absolutely no candidates from Spain, Austria, or France. Talk about getting the short end of the straw, okay? So that basically left English noblemen or second or third sons of smaller countries who probably couldn't provide the sort of financial and military support that Mary needed. Congratulations, Elizabeth. Well played. Oh, wait. Wait! Elizabeth felt bad about how it all sounded. I mean, it sounds a little bit harsh, don't you think? So, it wasn't an order per se, but advice that would be given by England. And if Mary took said advice, then she could be Elizabeth's heir. But it also couldn't be that easy. Cecil stepped in to make sure that there was a court set up that would basically judge whether or not Mary had the right to succeed Elizabeth should Elizabeth die before her. Okay, this framework essentially said that Mary was subject to England's whims, especially when it came to her marriage and the succession as a result of that. Mary was rightly furious. And as a ruler, like, honestly, what the fuck? Now, if you thought that was bad, Elizabeth did have a candidate in mind, you know, one or two, um, that for Mary. Um, but she actually wouldn't tell her outright at first. She kind of kept circling around it and wouldn't let her ambassador give the names. Uh, so Mary sent a response back, you know, well, how can I possibly choose when I was given the most abstract criteria? All right, Mary, truth time. Elizabeth's choice was Lord Robert Dudley. Robert who? Oh, you know, Elizabeth's favorite, the man she was supposedly in love with. Not only was Elizabeth choosing the husband, but it was a man who was 100% loyal to her and kept in her pocket. Team Elizabeth and England all the way. Both Mary and Dudley were taken aback. Okay, so both of them. Dudley, because uh, what? Marry someone else? Be separated from darling Elizabeth? No, not his love. And Scotland? What? Mary, because of everything else. Elizabeth's special someone? Check. A man far beneath Mary's station as queen? Double check. Who the fuck is this guy? Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Elizabeth actually took it one step further and thought that all three of them, her, Dudley, and Mary, would all live at the English court together. What? That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. Okay, so Mary would be married to Dudley, who's in love with Elizabeth, who's in love with Dudley, and then Mary would live at the English court that has nothing to do with her because she's the Queen of Scotland? Elizabeth, lay off the wine. Plus, remember Lady Jane Grey and the man who put her on the throne for a little over a week? A little under two weeks, really. Robert Dudley was the former Duke of Northumberland's son. Weird combination there. So Mary decided to hit back. Instead of laughing hysterically for days on end, which is actually what I would have done, she decided to finally give Elizabeth what she asked for. And that was the return of the Earl of Lennox to Scotland. Remember the guy that wanted to marry Marie de Guise and then defected to England when he didn't get his way? That's him. So as a result, now Mary started thinking, plotting, to be quite honest. 
Lennox's son was Lord Henry Darnley, age 17, and after Mary was uh, the next dude in all of England with a claim to the throne. So Mary plus Darnley equals an even better claim to the throne since he was, you know, a he. And unlike Mary, he was actually born in England. Plus, they were also, both of them, blood relatives of Elizabeth. Talk about a threat. Now, Mary started playing the game as a result. So to Elizabeth, it was all, oh, yes, I'm still thinking. Dudley, yes. Mm, yep, thinking. I'm thinking. Don't worry, I'm thinking. Meanwhile, she was trying to find out if Darnley was a real prospect for marriage and how to go about that exactly. Darnley came off as a very charming young man, and he was also very good-looking, although many men thought he was a little too effeminate. Why? Why? Because he was so beautiful. Also, he didn't have a beard. What man doesn't have a beard? That was the question they asked at that time, because most men did. And if any of you have read the All Souls trilogy by Deborah Harkness, that is actually brought up in book two, I do believe. Why is there no beard on Matthew's face? Looks aside... And outside, first wonderful impressions. Darnley was an idiot. He was a freaking man whore. And he never thought anything through. It was like half-baked ideas rattling around in his head. Well, he had the space considering he only had half a brain. I don't know that even that much existed. Now, Mary's lords actually thought she'd never marry him as a result. Oh, in this point, dudes, I agree with you. But she made one last-ditch effort to do things the right way, a.k.a. Elizabeth's way. So after trying to get her own way by marrying the guy she wanted, with some caveats, Mary's second offer was marrying Dudley and, as a result, finally being named as heir apparent. And then Elizabeth started doing what Elizabeth did. Hemming and hawing. Oh wait, name a successor? Here? Now? I don't know about that. Mary's response? You know what? No worries, cousin. There's a plan C and you won't like it. In February of 1565, Scotland gave Lord Darnley a passport so he could go to Scotland for a nice visit with Dad. Now, with Darnley in Scotland, Mary finally had a leg up on Elizabeth. And then, just a few months later, Elizabeth declared she had come to a new decision. She was doing that a lot. Mary could get married. When Elizabeth herself got married, or came to the ever-so-final decision that she will never, ever get married. Ever. Like, Elizabeth, honest to God, like, what the fuck are you doing? That's, it, it's literally asking for trouble. Like, it's almost as if Mary, standing right there, Elizabeth just lit the fuse of a bomb and handed it to her and said, There. Have at it. Until Mary throws it back. Okay, so obviously, Mary is completely pissed off. I mean, honest, would, would you not be, Adrian, would you be pissed off? I'd be super pissed off. Just, just super? I'd be super duper pissed off. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I right. take a, a leaf out of uh, Somerset's book and start lighting things on fire. That is not the answer. You never know. <laughs> All right. So, the prospect of being named the heir was dangled right in front of Mary's nose, basically like a snossage, and if only she just jumped through all the right hoops after, you know, the ten other hoops she's already jumped through. Right, so Mary's ambassador was sent to London and basically told Elizabeth that she should back the marriage between Mary and Darnley. And then we have Elizabeth, who's like, wait, what now? A marriage between who? 
Oh, no. No, 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 no. Darnley, you have to get back to England right this instant. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Lennox, you know what? While you're at it, you too. Okay, yet again, Elizabeth has backtracked. Like, so against this marriage that was she that she told Mary that she should marry Dudley or another man of English noble birth. Okay, you want to marry? Fine. Marry, but not Darnley. Any other Englishman, English nobleman, but Darnley. But Mary was tired of this back and forth, understandably, and being pulled in all these different directions. She was moving ahead with the marriage because, you know what? She was taking a stand, and she fucking wanted to, especially after Spain and France gave their support for it. On the sly. Catherine de' Medici had her ambassador tell Elizabeth that she was totally against this decision. She was playing both sides so she could retain relations with both. Okay, this is a common political tactic, so it is what it is. Now, Elizabeth then sent Throckmorton to Scotland with a piece of paper that a whole bunch of English noble lords had signed, lords from Elizabeth's privy council, privy councillors that didn't have anything to do with Mary, and this paper stated that Mary needed to get rid of Darnley and get married to Dudley or another English lord. Again, Elizabeth is treating another anointed queen like a subject and not as was an anointed queen. Yeah. Like, again, the fuck? But okay. And Mary was having absolutely none of it. She'd already done as she was asked anyway. Those were the terms she started with, so she chose another English lord. Darnley. It didn't help Elizabeth's cause that Dudley himself hadn't signed the document, because Dudley's over here like, but I don't wanna. Yeah, he's probably like, yeah, you marry that Darnley. You marry- No, I don't agree with this. Marry Darnley. Right? Now, Murray was against the marriage and told- And he told Mary. Okay? And here's where some of Mary's hard work started regressing. Those few years she spent trying to tie her nobles together was being undone with her decision to marry Darnley. They began splitting off into groups. Murray's against the marriage, defending the right of Protestantism, and the Lennox supporters, a mix of Protestants and Catholics who were all about getting more stuff, power, land, favor at court, all of it. Okay? And Mary had really reached her limit. She was really done with all the games. She wasn't playing anymore. She started by making sure Darnley was of rank high enough within the nobility to be suitable enough to marry a queen because she can't just be like, oh, I want to marry you. Like, there, there actually is a level of nobility he has to reach first. Okay? First, he was knighted. Then, he was made a baron. And finally, he became the Earl of Ross. By the way, this was all done on the same day. So she was really lining up all her ducks in a row. So she'd also told Darnley that she was going to raise him to the title of Duke of Albany. But when that didn't happen, he threw a temper tantrum by throwing a knife at a messenger. Because that's obviously the correct reaction to have. Yeah, apparently he didn't get the memo that, you know, you don't kill the messenger, but... Dudley um, kills, I mean, what? He didn't kill him, but... Darnley kills the messenger. Well, he didn't kill him. In his mind, he probably did. I don't know that he was necessarily trying to kill him, but he definitely threw a knife at the guy. Yeah. Well, okay, so this whole knife-throwing fiasco 
should have been the one and only reason Mary decided she needed to stop, have a think, and then realize that Darnley was just not the right king for her in her country. But no. You see, when Darnley first arrived on the Scottish scene, Mary was neither here nor there with him. The more time she spent with him, though, which included nursing him back to health when he got sick, the more she fell in love with him. Or the more she fancied herself in love with him, rather. But with such an immature fop, I don't really know how to say how or why. Yeah, I mean, definitely not the guy they would choose for The Bachelor. Now, by June of 1565, Mary was finally starting to realize that Darnley was actually a frog instead of a handsome prince. Um, but instead of turning back and claiming she drank a batch of really bad wine, she forged ahead. She'd come too far to get egg on her face and basically marry Darnley to stick it to Elizabeth. Um, you know, that's the reason you get married. A match made in heaven. Plus, backtracking and admitting that she, a queen, was wrong really wouldn't have been a strong move and likely would have put her under Elizabeth's boots. So I guess in that regard, we can understand where she's coming from. And while this marriage wouldn't end in happily after, ever after, it did appeal to some of the English subjects and Mary's own Scottish ones as well. She was getting married and would now be able to produce an heir, something Elizabeth was definitely not doing. Big check for Mary. And to the people of Scotland, they would soon have a young, beautiful queen with a very good-looking king on her arm, because um, apparently appearance really sometimes is everything. But to Cecil and the English political landscape, Mary getting married to Darnley was a dangerous prospect. Soon she'd be married with children to a man who also has a strong claim to the English throne. What then would stop Catholics from rising up for Mary and deposing Elizabeth? What to do, what to do. So, like a chip off the old block, Elizabeth sent Darnley's mother, Lady Margaret Douglas, to the Tower of London and told Lennox and Darley, Darnley to return right away. But Mary took a stand and ordered them to stay in Scotland. She actually had the perfect out. Oh no, they went to England. Now what do I do? Oh well, time to look for match number three. Oh, Mary. Instead, she started getting ready for her wedding. You should have let him go. On July 22nd, 1565, the bands were read in St. Giles Kirk. Now, the reading of the bands was a requirement in Catholicism when two people were getting married. It was an announcement that stated this thing would be happening, and it also let people object to the marriage, but it had a it had to be a legal or religious reason. You couldn't just object because you felt like objecting. I don't like Darnley. You can't marry him. Not legal or religious. Gotta provide one of those. Um, and interestingly enough, the Catholic Church actually required the bans be read until 1983. Now, the same day, Darnley finally got what he wanted. He became the Duke of Albany. No more knife throwing. She should have instead suggested he go on an adventure and claim some new uncharted territory as his own to be Duke of in a faraway solar system. Uh, but alas, twas not meant to be. What are they called? A pilgrimage. He should have gone on a pilgrimage. A very long one. Very long. To the New World. That's a long trip. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> anyway, um, so all while this is happening, okay, and, you know, they're getting closer to the wedding, more and more lords were really starting to hate Darnley, um, which was a recipe for disaster, and he was making it super easy to hate him. You know, he was starting to overreach himself. He wasn't king yet, and he'd already gotten into his head that he held the power. Why? Because he was man, and Mary was woman. All right. 
Now, on July 29, 1565, Darnley and Mary were finally joined together in holy matrimony. Until death do them part. Once they said I do, Darnley put a ring on it. Um, in reality, he actually put three rings on Mary's right hand. At that time, the wedding rings were worn on the right hand, not the left. And when Mary settled in for prayers, Darnley booked it in case anyone confused him for a Catholic. Which is what he was raised as, actually, but he was the furthest thing from religious. Um, he'd be just as comfortable, really, in a Protestant prayer service as a Catholic one. Then came time to party. Huzzah! The queen was married. Food, dancing, merrymaking. It was all on order that night. The next day, Darnley was declared the King of Scots. He would rule with his wife, not over her. But his name did take precedence over hers on official documents. Henry and Marie instead of the other way around. Uh, fun fact, uh, apparently no one was thrilled by this. This is hilarious. So when they pronounced him king, it was completely silent before and after the declaration was made. No one said a thing except his dad, who, you know, very loyally piped out, God save his grace. Um, Elizabeth did try one more time to butt in, uh, wondering how Mary could possibly have the audacity to marry Darnley. Now, Mary set her straight. She was really coming into her own and standing up for herself. She didn't have to ask anyone, she said. She's also an anointed queen of her own lands, just like Elizabeth. But to build some sort of bridge, Mary did tell her that she and Darnley wouldn't do a thing to come against England. With her marriage arrangement settled, Mary had to immediately turn her attention to her brother, who had decided to throw a temper tantrum of his own. I mean, honestly. He and a bunch of other lords decided to rebel against the marriage with Darnley, because by marrying him, the balance between the religions would come to an end, and Protestantism had to be protected. In reality, they were worried about their stuff and their own power within Scotland. Mary did as much as she could to assure her Protestant subjects that she really wasn't out to get their religion. She even ate meat during Lent, which Catholics weren't supposed to do. She was a show-and-tell kind of gal, but her average everyday subjects weren't the ones rebelling. Before the wedding even took place, Mary started gathering her army together. She also called on the Earl of Bothwell. This isn't the same Bothwell who wanted to marry Marie de Guise, but his son. And Bothwell, unlike his father, was a Protestant and very anti-Catholic. But more than that, he was 110% Team Scotland and not a fan of the English in the slightest. So at least Mary had his loyalty. And bonus, Bothwell and Murray didn't get along. And if we're collecting people who don't like Murray, then it was time to invite the Earl of Huntley to the party. He and Bothwell became super friends and then brothers-in-law the next year when Bothwell married Lady Jean Gordon who was Huntley's sister. Also, I hear hunting down the guy you hate is a real bonding experience. We should try that out sometime, Adrian. I'm okay with that. See? We're good. So, Mary rallied her troops. She inspired loyalty among her subjects, especially since she was directly involved in putting a stop to the rebels. As in, she was on a horse riding with her soldiers with a pistol. How badass is that? Okay. The whole debacle became known as the Chase About Raid, and it really was what it sounds like. They all chased each other around the Scottish countryside from city to city, and just when they thought they'd caught up to the other guy, nope. Close, but no cigar. So I basically picture a silent montage, you know, 
like they did in the 1920s silent films, of Mary and her large retinue of soldiers chasing Murray and his allies from one place to another, while the song that kind of sounds like the chicken dance plays in the background. Now, I would hum that for you, but that would be really bad for your ears. So we're just going to continue with the story instead. Yeah, let's do that instead. Now, eventually, Murray and his guys made it to Dumfries, where they hold up until October of 1565. When Mary and her troops finally got there in October after resting her army in Edinburgh for a few weeks, Moray and his friends had to run off to England, hoping for some backup. Their hopes were in vain. Mary was quite proud of herself. You know, we'd say she was flying high on her popularity, she defeated the rebels, and sent Moray packing. Things were looking up. Okay, so now Darnley and Mary could really begin to settle into wedded bliss with one another and uh, tackle the task of ruling a country together. Or not, considering while Mary was ruling Scotland, Darnley was trying to get the Catholic rulers of Europe to become his friend and acknowledge his awesome kingliness. In fact, he had all the power now. He was a man, after all. A man-king, actually. This was his thought process. Buddy, your wife is still more important than you. She was actually born the Queen of Scotland. Go away. Cool your heels. As we said before, his name came first on documents, but he was so busy having a good time, getting drunk, and making enemies that Mary had a stamp made of a signature to ensure that the affairs of state were taken care of in a timely fashion. Otherwise, things were being held up since he was too busy to show up and do his job as king. Um, Now, with all his efforts to be seen as a great Catholic king, he was stirring up trouble. That religious balance Mary had established, he was fucking it all up. Mr. Oh No, I Don't Do Catholic Prayers the Day of My Wedding was singing a different tune. He even wanted to restore the mass to Scotland. So now he was completely attacking, essentially, that status quo that they had between the religions. So the two of them started arguing not long after they were married, and their fights only got worse. Once she was pregnant, he'd basically served his primary function, and she was done with his antics. So, you know, as we said before, his name came first in the official documents. Like Francis II, he signed on the left, which was the more important spot. Mary was done, okay? She decided to take it all back. His name came second. He signed on the right. And the coins now read Marie and Henry, Queen and King, instead of the other way around. He could now remain the man of leisure he was, drinking and carousing at will, as usual. So basically nothing changed. Um, Now, the single most important thing that Mary did was to refuse him the crown matrimonial. Thank goodness that she had the good sense to do this. And also, thankfully, only the Privy Council could actually, um, or Parliament, I believe, you know, give that right to Darnley. And since they weren't his fans, they were definitely not about to do that. So without the crown matrimonial, he couldn't be anointed as king. And if he wasn't anointed, then he couldn't become the actual king if something happened to Mary. Um, You know, he could still sign his name Henry R., Henry Rex, Henry the King. But outside of that, he couldn't wield any of the powers that a king could. Well, if she wouldn't give Darnley the crown matrimonial, then they just take it. That's what good loyal subjects do, right? That's what the Lennoxes thought anyway. And so began more plotting. But this time it was her husband standing in the shadows. All right, so in this, the Lennoxes actually decided to team up with the exiled rebel lords. Okay, so some of the nobles who joined were against Mary allowing the exiled lords' lands to be seized because, in their minds... 
If she could do it to the rebel lords, she could do it to other nobles. As for the plot itself, Darnley was willing to turn on Mary if Parliament would hand over the crown matrimonial, courtesy of the exiled rebel lords. He'd then become the true King of Scots, let the rebel lords come home, and provide pardons for each of them. Everyone would be happy, except Mary. So, no land or titles were to be seized. Darnley would also then backtrack and welcome back the happy balance that existed between the religions before he made a mess of everything. Moray voted yay for the plot. Okay, so the only thing left to do was to find a fall guy, someone who was the whole reason Darnley went crazy and decided being a Catholic king was the way to go. And that person ended up being David Rizzio, Mary's private secretary. Why him? Well, Darnley was mad with jealousy. That Rizzio, he'd been doing the dirty with Mary. How could he? What a betrayal. And for whatever reason, Darnley actually believed this. Okay, so I guess to him it explained why he and his wife were at odds and why she backtracked on the crown matrimonial. She was in bed with another man. It couldn't possibly have been because Darnley was a, was a petulant brat who shouldn't have been allowed to be in charge of toasting the queen's bread, let alone her country, okay? And if anyone was sleeping in anybody else's beds, let's be honest, it was Darnley because... Man whore. Dude, okay? He was actually known to... Well, suspected, rather, of having sexual relations with other men. Okay? Orgies, men, women. He really didn't care. He liked sex, and he was gonna have it. Not with the queen. Just saying. I mean, he had it with the queen also. I but... mean, well, yes, but with other people also. Okay? Adultery. Adultery on the fucking queen. Moron. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, though. If you're a woman, I guess it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. No comment. Okay, so... Poor Rizzio was set to be assassinated. Alright, so quite a few people knew about this evil plan. However, Mary was one of the only ones completely unaware. Okay, so we're actually going to stop it right here. Okay, and this will be a two-part episode. And we're so sorry because we so did not plan on two parts. Um, but, you know, we're going to stop shy of making a four-hour episode. That Some of you might love that. I don't know. But we will pick up in part two of Queen Mary with the assassination of Rizzio. And guys, happy news. You don't have to wait a month to get that episode. In two weeks, Mary Queen of Scots, part two, will be available. And we promise you, it is part two, the final part. Yeah, only two parts. This will not be another four-part episode. Thanks, guys, so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate you as listeners, and we love having you tune into our episodes. Um, you know, leave us a review on iTunes and uh, if you love the uh, podcast and let us know how you're doing. If you have any topics, um, any history topics that you think we should cover, message us on social media. You can also email us at hello at dearworldlovehistory.com and we will catch you next time with Mary Queen of Scots Part 2. Historians out!
I'm Elisa Lucas from Best Forevers, a podcast for kindred spirits. I'd like to start a movement where we spend more time loving on our friends because although friends are important to us, they're often in the shadow of other relationships. So if you want to love on your friendships a little bit more, embrace friendship a little bit more, or just appreciate your friendships a little bit more, then this podcast is for you. We'll explore all the different ways friendships take place, share the amazing stories of friendship, and discuss best practices for the difficulties that friends may experience. It's time to embrace friendships because without our friends, who would we be? So check out Best Forevers on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other podcasting listening venues. And be sure to follow Best Forevers Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This is Brew Crime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer. That Nina will probably hate. Yeah, probably. Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps, and if you can't find it, contact us, and we'll try and change that. We can be found at brewcrime.com, or on Twitter at brewcrime, on Facebook at brewcrime, or if you want to go to our group, it's group slash brewcrime on Facebook, or on Instagram at Pacific Beer Chat. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle.